With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for Cookies and Crime. Hey everyone, it's Karen and welcome back to another episode of Cookies and Crime. I can't believe Christmas is already here. Like it's just in a few days and I swear this has been the longest yet shortest holiday season ever. I have been so busy with so many projects but the one project i was super excited about has come out so i made a gingerbread house of the pink palace from Coraline, which i have been working on for almost four years so before i was a legitimate baking content creator i still love to bake and i was going to make the pink palace into a gingerbread house and I even reached out to Leica at that time to see if they wanted me to make it for them. Of course, they didn't respond. I had like 400 followers. They did not care about me. And then I ended up moving around. So I put the model, I made the whole house out of foam board already. I put it in a box and I just kept it until the day that I finally got to work with them. And that happened this year. And so it just feels so full circle to me. So if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. And a few episodes ago, I mentioned that I was going to be on Food Network's Christmas Cookie Challenge. I had been on it before, but I was coming back this year as a returning winner to compete again, but this time on teams, so I had a partner. And I kept on forgetting to tell you guys the results, but I feel like a lot of time has passed already, so it's not really a spoiler. But I won for a second time, which is absolutely incredible that i was able to do that i'm not gonna lie the first time i competed i was pretty confident in myself but this second time i had no idea what was gonna happen especially with a partner and let me tell you bakers always bake alone so all of us were like uh, i don't know if this is a good idea to partner up but it ended up being fine and great i love my partner but yeah, we won and um, also fun fact, we had to split the $10,000 prize. So we each got 5,000, which isn't chump change, right? Like I don't wanna seem ungrateful, but you also have to pay 40% tax on any winning money that you get. So, you know, what does that come out to? Like a little bit more than 2,500? I feel safe saying it on here. Food Network is getting cheap. They're getting very cheap. But nonetheless, it was a great experience and a great way to end this year. And one last thing before I jump into this, I am feeling a little under the weather. I don't know if my voice sounds a little bit different. I kind of like my voice better this way, actually. It kind of sounds more sultry and like ASMR. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, I have a cookie in front of me and it is my cookie. I haven't eaten one of my own cookies since the first episode of this podcast. And this is one of my favorite cookies. We'll call this the campfire cookie. Full disclosure, this combination I learned at a bakery that I worked at eight years ago. This is not their recipe. I lost that paper a super long time ago and I wouldn't feel right doing that. So this is the recipe I've come up with. It's basically a chocolate chip cookie, but you add in Rice Krispies and marshmallows. 
But the Rice Krispie has been baked with a whole bunch of other stuff like butter, milk powder, sugar, salt. So it's like this Rice Krispie on steroids and it's so freaking good. I have to say that's the best part. But let's bite into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys know I'm gonna be biased, right? <laughs> it's my own cookie. But what I love about it is that there's just more texture and the good kind of texture because I don't like the texture of peanuts. I don't like textures of certain things, but this is all the good textures in one cookie. There's also the saltiness to it. I think I should know because I know the ingredients, but I think it's from the milk powder or the Rice Krispies. There's just like the saltiness to it that helps break all the sweetness. And I'll give this cookie like an eight and a half, okay? I, I wouldn't give it a 10 out of 10. There can definitely be improvements. But if you want to try this cookie out yourself, I have the recipe on my Instagram and also on my TikTok, so you can check it out there. So for this episode, I contemplated doing a Christmas-themed true crime case, but the one I was most drawn to to share in this episode doesn't have any like Christmas themes. There's no murderer in a Santa suit or anything like that, but it did occur on Christmas Day. And I feel like at this point, you're already guessing and no, it is not John Benet Ramsey, which, you know, I can definitely cover in a future episode. But today we are going to be talking about the Lawson family murders. This is also a pretty famous one. I feel like most people know about it or heard something of it. Others haven't, but either way, let's dive into it. In 1911, Charles Lawson married Fanny Manring, with whom he had eight children. The third, William, born in 1914, died of an illness in 1920. In 1918, following the move of his younger brothers Marion and Elijah to the Germantown area in North Carolina, Lawson followed right behind them with his family. The Lawsons worked as tenant tobacco farmers, saving enough money by 1927 to buy their own farm which was already 200 years old, on Brook Cove Road. In 1929, days prior to Christmas, Lawson, 43, took Fanny, his wife, 37, and their seven children, Arthur, age 16. He's also quoted to be 19 in other references, but I'm just gonna say 16 because it seems to match some other numbers. Mary, age 17, Carrie, age 12, Maybell, age 7, James, age 4, Raymond, age 2, and Mary Lou, age 4 months, into town to buy new clothes and to have a family portrait taken. I feel like I just read a whole paragraph there and it was just names of their children. I know some people still have this many kids today, but I cannot imagine having that many kids. Oh my god. Immediately, I think, with what money? What money do you have at that time? As a tobacco farmer, because they didn't make a lot of money, but they had enough money to feed all of these mouths. That is incredible. So the family goes into town to buy new clothes and to have a family portrait taken. But this was actually really strange for a working class rural family of the era. Taking portraits like this were for the wealthy and it was super expensive. And everyone in the family got new outfits, all nine of them. And this is before Sheehan and Forever 21, right? Like a whole new outfit that time probably cost like $150 or something. I'm totally making up that number. But clothes weren't as throwaway as they are now. So this could be seen as super, super suspicious. Lawson didn't grow up wealthy. His parents were sharecroppers, 
which means they rented a small patch of land and in return gave a portion of their yields over each year to the landowner. And this was not a practice you could use to get wealthy. But also, Lawson had purchased his own farm two years previous. And he was going to be mentioned on the Associated Press Wire, which I believe is some type of news outlet, that went out on the day after the murders, which called Lawson a well-to-do farmer. So with those two things, it could potentially appear that these portraits and new outfits were a way to celebrate or reward them in some way. So anytime you read about these murders, you will probably see this portrait that they took. And I feel like at that time, this portrait was probably considered really nice. I mean, even looking at it, it looks like a pretty decent family portrait. I feel like it was also expensive because this is just the time where cameras were just coming about. There's no disposable cameras. It's not something that like everyone has. And they also took pictures differently. Like today, when we take pictures with people, we smile. But in this photo, all of them are just looking like dead face. That was the wrong term to use. I'm so sorry. I just mean that like they are not smiling at all. They do not look happy. But that is how they took photos back then. And I guess it makes sense, right? Because it's like, this is how I look naturally. So why wouldn't I take a picture that looks like my face relaxed all the time? And I have to say, and when you see this portrait, you will probably agree with me. Arthur is a very attractive man. Like if he were born in today's age, he would be a model. And I feel really weird saying that because he's potentially 16 or 19, we don't know. But you know how people during this time, they always look so much older than we do. So even though he's like either 16 or 19, this man looks like he's 25. He looks like a man. He's wearing a whole suit. His hair is done in a man way. Go look at it for yourself and tell me what you think. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So on the afternoon of December 25th, everyone was kind of doing their own thing. Mary was in the kitchen baking a Christmas cake. Sometime after this, Carrie, 12, and Maybelle, 7, had set out to visit their aunt and uncle who lived close by, but they would never make it. Lawson, their father, was waiting for them by the tobacco farm until they were in range. He shot them with a 12-gauge shotgun. After they fell to the ground, he went over and made sure they were dead by bludgeoning them. He then placed the bodies in the tobacco farm. Afterwards, he started walking back to the house where Fanny was sitting on the porch. He shot her as well. As soon as the gun was fired, Mary, who was just inside, screamed, while the two small boys, James and Raymond, attempted to find a hiding place. Lawson walks in and Mary is hysterical. He shoots her 
He then went to find the two boys and killed them as well. Lastly, he killed the baby, Mary Lou. It's believed that she was beaten to death. While all of this is happening, Arthur, the eldest son, is gone. He was sent to run an errand before committing the crime. Arthur had been rabbit hunting when he ran out of ammunition and decided to walk into Germantown to buy more. And this is where it's a little bit murky too when it comes to the information given. One version is that Arthur had been already rabbit hunting and he did run out of ammunition, so he had to go into town to buy more. And the other version is that Lawson told Arthur to go rabbit hunting or to go into town to get more ammunition. It's kind of the same but different because then we have to talk about whether Lawson spared Arthur or not, but we can get into that a little bit later. So everyone who was murdered in the house was given a pillow to rest their heads on and their arms were crossed. As for the two girls murdered outside of the home, Charlie placed some rocks underneath their heads and also crossed their arms. Does anyone else think that's just weird behavior? Because I feel like when we talk about murder, it's kind of black and white, right? Like when you murder someone, you're just evil. You want to harm people. And that's definitely true. But at the same time, he's trying to give his family like a good resting position and he's making sure that their bodies are properly placed so when they're found they look more peaceful but he also intentionally killed his family so to me the fact that he did that for his family tells me that somewhere in him he did care for his family just not enough to not murder them but that's really interesting to me and i feel like if he were still alive they would question him about that so at this point lawson has murdered his whole family except for arthur who's not there but some of the gunshots have already been heard and so rumors are already spreading it happens that fast in a small town that there are murders on the property and people are starting to gather around the property but before they do lawson walks himself to the woods near the house he points the gun at himself and kills himself at this point arthur has heard the gossip himself and he's returning to his home with a police officer when they got there, they found Lawson's body along with letters to his parents. There were footprints going back and forth in front of the tree, which supposedly meant that he was pacing around the tree prior to taking his own life. He had shot himself in the heart. So Lawson basically wiped out his whole family, including his four-month-old daughter. And Arthur comes back with no family at all. So if Lawson was really trying to spare Arthur, did he really? I mean, he now has to live with so much trauma. But let's talk about that more because it's believed, I think mostly believed that Lawson had sent Arthur to do an errand. So technically he did want to spare Arthur, but why would he do that? Of course, there are a lot of theories to this and we will truly never know, but my theory is that at this time, and even still now, men are way more respected and seen as more special than women. And so a part of me thinks that Lawson wanted to spare his oldest son so that he could carry on their name. I feel like to me, that seems pretty logical. I mean, for a man who can kill his whole family, why wouldn't he have some toxic belief like that, that he should spare one of the boys in his family to keep the name going, you know? And let's say that Lawson wasn't trying to spare Arthur and it just happened to be that Arthur actually ran out of ammo and needed to go into town. I feel like at that point, Lawson could have just honestly given up on everything and just thought, all right, just let the boy go and I'm going to do my business. 
But again, that's just speculation and we will never know. And it also seems that the letters to his parents weren't of any significance. I don't think they described why he did what he did because there's not a lot of information on what the contents of those letters were. And at this point, no one knows why Lawson just snapped on his family. And so the gossip and speculation begin. So months before the murders, Lawson had actually sustained a head injury. And for a long time, his surviving relatives and friends pointed to the fact that Lawson had suffered some form of head trauma a few months before the incident, and they were convinced that that was the source of the madness that drove him to do what he did. One researcher of the case even claimed he had been acting erratically in the months leading up to the incident, and had complained to the family doctor on more than one occasion of terrible headaches and insomnia. And that seems to be a very logical theory, because a lot of things can change in your brain after a head injury. Like people who all of a sudden want to unalive themselves or want to unalive other people. I don't know why I just went PG with those terms. On the outside, a lot of people might just think that person is in a lot of distress or depressed or that person is pure evil. But no, sometimes it's a tumor. Sometimes it's something that's going on in our brain that is making us feel that way. So yeah, I feel like it's a logical theory. However, an autopsy and analysis of his brain at Johns Hopkins Hospital found no abnormalities. So according to science, that head injury shouldn't have changed his behaviors at all. But there was another theory as to why he snapped on his family. In 1990, a book was published called White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, and it was about the Lawson murders. In the book, it claims that Lawson was sexually abusing Mary, his daughter. It began with an anonymous source who heard a rumor during a tour of the Lawson home shortly after the murders. And the day before this book was published, the author received a phone call from Stella Lawson, a relative who had already been interviewed for the book. Stella said that she had overheard Fanny's sister-in-law and aunts that Fanny believed that there was something happening between Charlie and Mary, that their father and daughter relationship was way more than just that. Doesn't that just give you the biggest ick ever? I feel like I can stomach a lot of things, right? Being in the true crime industry, but when I hear incest, like, why? Why does that exist? Why does that have to be a thing? But that's just so gross. And to do it to your child, like this person who is relying on you to be a safe haven, and you just F them up even more. Oh, and it gets worse. So the same author who wrote White Christmas, Bloody Christmas wrote a second book called The Meaning of Our Tears, still about the murders, revealed that a close friend of Mary Lawson's Ella May came forward and disclosed that a few weeks before Christmas, that Christmas in 1929, Mary confided in her that she was pregnant by her own father and that he and Fanny both knew about it. So of course, many thought that this was the reason that he wanted to murder his whole family because he didn't want the secret to get out. Another close friend and neighbor to the Lawson family, Hill Hampton, stated that he knew of serious problems going on. Apparently, Lawson had forced himself onto Mary and impregnated her. He threatened her and said if anyone found out, there would be some killing done. 
So I know it seems like a lot of he said, she said, you know, it's just like hearing from person to person, but I feel like this is true. I feel like when it comes to this type of thing, like certain affairs, when you have a suspicion about something, you are most likely right. And I also feel like this is a valid reason as to why Lawson would feel like he had to murder his whole family. And you know, this is typical familicide coming from a man, a man who feels super disgraced or that he has disgraced his family, whether it's financially or because you knocked up your own daughter, they can't just let you live. They need to murder you for some reason. And that is unfortunately exactly what he did. But again, even though we have these two very valid theories, it is not confirmed why he murdered his family. Only he really knows and we can only speculate. But uh, I think we know. I think we, I think we silently know. And regardless of the reason, he is a man who killed his own family. That is enough of a reason. Because men. Shortly after the murders, Charlie's brother, Marion Lawson, opened up the home as a tourist attraction. The cake that Mary had baked on Christmas Day was displayed on the tour. Because visitors began to pick at the raisins on the cake to take as souvenirs, it was placed in a covered glass cake server for many years. Eventually, it was taken off display and it was buried. And people think that true crime today is problematic. Um, I don't think they want to hear what used to happen a hundred years ago. But this was a total thing back then. People would open up crime scenes and charge people like 25 cents to come in and see everything. This was before like proper investigations were done and so that's why they stopped doing this because this was effing with evidence. And if you think picking raisins from a cake that a murdered girl had made is bad, one person who visited the house and probably more right after they were murdered were able to scoop up some of the blood and put it in a jar and they kept it as a souvenir. Lawson's guns were taken, the bricks from the cabin's old chimneys were taken, the bark from the tree that Lawson had leaned on before he killed himself was stripped off of the tree. It was the wild wild west back then. People did the most outrageous things and after a while they had to put wiring around the house so people stopped taking from it. Even if I were alive back then, I don't think I could ever do that because I am so scared of taking something home with me. Like how do you scoop up a jar of blood and not think that you're gonna be haunted for the rest of your life? That's taking it way, way, way too far. But again, back then, it was probably a little bit more normal. So Lawson, Fanny, and all of the murdered children were taken to TB Knight Funeral Parlor, 20 miles away from Germantown. Even though it was super far away for them at the time, they had to take it to this parlor because it could accommodate eight bodies and had an elevator. The funeral home became a hotel and now it is the Madison Dry Goods and Country Store. The store has been featured on a Netflix show called 28 Days Haunted, which I watched a little bit of it, but it has ghost adventure vibes, so it just seems like it's very sensationalized. But basically, these two demonologists go to the store. They're not told what happens there and they have to figure it out themselves. But I personally dropped off when they started talking about a demon had possessed Lawson and that's why he did that to his family. And that's like, I don't want to go there, you know? I, I take that type of content with a grain of salt because it's just a little too much, if you know what I mean. As for Arthur, who was the one surviving person in the family, 
he would go on to get married and had four children himself. But his life would also be cut short, even shorter than his parents, when he died in a motor accident in 1945 at the age of 32 or 31. That is really unfortunate that he also passed so suddenly from an accident but in a completely different way than the rest of his family had died. That is super sad that he didn't even live as long as his parents and no one in that family lived above 43. But hopefully he got to reunite with his family on the other side and the Lawson family murders became an infamous murder. Infamous enough that people have also written songs about it, which I feel like it's commonplace apparently. I mean, there's a lot of songs about murders and deaths of people and they make it sound not so horrible. It's like when you listen to those songs, you don't necessarily think, how dare you make a song about this? It's like almost kind of catchy or almost like a poem or a lesson in some way. But that is the case of the Lawson family murders. I also have a theory as to why he committed these murders on Christmas Day because out of any day, why did you choose this one? And I feel like this man had some ego to him. I mean, the fact that he took advantage of his daughter and threatened her. He took a portrait of his family before Christmas, so the murders were premeditated. And I feel like he wanted to take that picture because he knew that it was going to live in infamy. Like this was going to be the picture that everyone looked back to when they talked about these murders. He wanted people to know the faces. And he also did it on Christmas because he wanted to overshadow Christmas. Like he wanted to go out with a bang. And that's no conspiracy theory. I don't even think that's like a wild theory. I feel like we could all agree that that's something that a man would do. But enough about this icky man, let's jump into cookies and crime trivia. So I know I am not eating a gingerbread cookie right now, and this is totally a missed opportunity I should have. But because it's Christmas, let's talk about gingerbread. The history of gingerbread is very interesting and all over the place. So out of these four options, which statement is false? Is it A, gingerbread used to be the original coal, as in if you weren't good for Christmas, you would get coal instead because kids saw it as a healthy snack. B, it's said that Queen Elizabeth came up with the concept of the gingerbread man after wanting to present them to visiting officials as gifts. C, gingerbread houses can be traced back to ancient Greece and Egypt. Or D, unmarried women in England would often eat gingerbread men for good luck in meeting a husband. I know these are a lot of outrageous claims, but I will give you five seconds. And the lie was A, gingerbread was not the original coal. I feel like gingerbread has probably evolved so much that the gingerbread from like 200 years ago was completely different. Like I have a feeling the ginger part of gingerbread was way more apparent or the actual focal point in cookies back then, but now it's like a mix of cinnamon and those nice fall spices. I don't know why, but it's a wild idea to think that Queen Elizabeth I came up with the concept of a gingerbread man. Now for the crime trivia, what percentage of men are familicide offenders? And again, familicide is a murder-suicide within a family where one family member kills one or more other family members. Is it A, 55%, B, 75%, C, 88%, or D, 96%? 
I will give you five seconds. And the answer is D, 96% of familicide offenders are men. I found this in a study of family annihilators and the first sentence in this literature review in this study says, in this thesis, only male offenders will be considered as they are the predominant familicide offenders, 96%. I mean, I see why there's a whole study on this because if it is 96% of fathers, there's definitely something happening in male brains that makes them more susceptible to doing this. And I feel like as I've done more true crime research, reading certain things like this, of course, there's a part of me that's like, this is so fucked up. But another part of me is getting more analytical. Like when I see that 96% of men are familicide offenders, I want to know why. I want to know what it is about the male brain that makes them more susceptible to this. Because when we understand that, maybe we can prevent that in some way. But at the same time, it is hard to do that because people are out there living their lives and sometimes you don't see this stuff until it's too late. But also because this has happened enough times, we can talk about warning signs that hopefully do not lead to familicide. But it's typically, you know, if if the family is going bankrupt or the man is filing for bankruptcy, there's divorce, there's resentment, there's more physical and verbal abuse. I know that sounds really overarching, but those are the signs and warnings that we as women should take. And sadly, that is the fact of the matter that we have to think about. And another thing I should say is that I know if you're interested in true crime and you listen to it or read it a lot, it sounds like these things happen very often, but they don't. They can happen, but you shouldn't live your life in fear thinking it's going to happen to you. It happens pretty seldomly, thankfully. But when it does happen, it's really sad and you never think it's going to be you. So don't be afraid, but also stay alert, if that makes sense. And that is the end of this episode. I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season, whatever you are celebrating, and have a wonderful new year. And listen, you don't have to abide by like new year's resolutions or anything because me, now that I'm 30, I've given up on all that. New year, same me. I really don't care at this point. I feel like I'm pretty solid. I will always work towards being a better person, but I'm not trying to I'm not trying to go out of my way to do the most. You know, I'm tired. I'm sure you are too. So if you enjoy Cookies and Crime, please give me a follow, subscribe, follow me on Instagram at Cookies and Crime Official. Merch is available on my website. The link is in the description. Happy holidays, happy new year, and I will talk to you guys next time. Stay safe out there. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.